You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week we have my wonderful friend Isaac Fitzgerald on the show to talk about his new memoir, Dirtbag Massachusetts. It just hit the New York Times bestseller list as well. Now, Isaac is one of the most generous men of books. He's always championing others' works especially on the Today Show where he shares book recommendations. He's also the author of the best-selling children's book called How to Be a Pirate and the co-author of Pen and Ink and Knives and Ink, which are both collections of stories inspired by tattoos. But this week, we're going to talk about his life. We touch upon embracing bars as places of escape and contemplation, we also talk about the unconventional ways we come to accept our bodies and why he's so glad he waited a decade to write this memoir so that his anger had muted and transformed into compassion, forgiveness, and humor. I hope you love Isaac as much as I do. Here he is, here he is, Isaac Fitzgerald. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I love Lit Up. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And as Isaac walked in, I was wearing a mask, you know, for protocol reasons. And the little tears were just bubbling up <laughs> over, over because I like to read just before someone comes in that last part of the book to see how it landed. And it landed. Yeah, I'm very sorry. That's your, it's an emotional one for sure. Sorry, it didn't land on such a humorful. Like we're we're here, we're here to feel feelings. Let's just say the book, it it ends in such a poignant, vulnerable, beautiful place that you lead us to so carefully. I'm going to go back in time. 
because there's a line that you start the book with that you then kind of, it echoes in the beginning of this very important part called my story. Can you tell us the first line? I absolutely can. Of this crazy, wonderful book. Well, it's a, it's a line I've been using for a very long time. And it's, it's, my parents were married when they had me just to different people. And that has been a line that I've used since I was a child almost. Anytime anybody asks me, you know, when you get to know somebody, they start to ask you those questions. Oh, where are you from? You know, you go through the usual kind of the top surface. And then people get to know you more and they want to know a little bit more. They want to know a little bit deeper. And that line for me was always a way to share something very deep and personal. My parents were married when they had me, just to different people. But also it was a way of almost to deflect. Like I could understand that like people were a little bit shocked when they would hear that my parents are married just to different people when I was born. And so I could watch as they they process that. And in that time that allowed me to then bounce out to something else. So in a way it was giving something, but also using it as deflection. My parents raised me on books. They really put into me kind of a respect and and a love for literature, which I'm deeply appreciative of. And so they they taught me to really read a bunch and like love books. And so I knew for a long time that I had a hell of an opening line in that line. But the reason why I used it here, I mean, I was thinking about it for years, but it was also just that I knew that would be a great place to start. But instead of what I'd done for years and years and years, which was using it almost as a deflection, is that I had to start there and then actually go into the deeper background of my story. Well, it feels like if anyone, I'm like, does anyone out there not know who you are? Probably not if you're a listener. No, 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 come on. No, but I feel that you are much beloved in the book world and beyond, and you are such a generous supporter of other people's work you're funny gregarious like awesome and you've written all these other books and we're gonna I want to explain some of your tattoos I'm like (laughs) Isaac's gonna have to take off this great camo shirt (laughs) reveal some of himself to me but what I'm trying to get at is it took you a while to write this book oh yeah not deflect yeah why was now the time So it's something I've been thinking about a lot, actually. But it did. It took me years and years and years to write this book. One, I had to figure out how to write. And that took me a long time. I didn't go to school for this. I didn't go to a graduate program. I didn't go to an MFA. I really respect people that do. I think that that has a perfect and beautiful place. But for myself, I knew that that kind of structured academic route was not for me. But I did know that I loved books. And so... I had to take the time to learn, to study, and in my own way, not, again, not in academia, but just by reading and getting to know the books world. Like, that's part of why I threw myself so wholeheartedly into the books world. And I loved it because I got to become a cheerleader. I got to get a front row seat in a way to so many other people's success. And the whole time, though, I was kind of taking notes. I was kind of like, okay, that's this works. This is how this works. And da 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 So for me, it was really about trying to take the time to figure out how to tell the stories that I knew I had. And I'm so glad that I did because if I've written this book at 25, 
it would be so much different than the book that I've written at 35. I started at 35. I'm 39 now. So even then, when I really started in earnest, it still took me a long time. But at 25, this book would have been very much, I was estranged from my family at that point. It would have been filled with a lot of anger, which is not to say that there's not anger in this book. But at 35, sitting down, started, my family was already, you know, this is, people ask me, what's the book about? And there's many different ways to describe that. But one of them is, this book is about my family exploding apart and then coming back together in a very different shape, in a very new shape. And at 25, the story would have just been about exploding apart. It would have just been the anger and the frustration that I had with the childhood that I had. But now I was able to take the time, one, to learn how to write a story, to tell a story, to figure out the beats that I wanted to share. And then also I was able to, thanks to the progression that my family has made, all of a sudden it was there for me. My parents really failed as parents, but it turns out they're incredible grandparents. And so this gave me almost this arc that I would not have had at 25. So it took me a long time to figure it out, but I'm really, really glad that it that I did. And the, the flip side of that is at some point you do have to know when to put the book down because maybe this book would also be totally different at 45. But I think I found the place, started it really in earnest when I was 23, just thinking about it, started actually trying to write it in my early to mid thirties. And now the book is, is what it is today. And I'm really proud of it. You should be. It's beautiful. And as a, you know, woman that I am, I feel like I've been, well, a trying to find a book like this by a man that, I mean, there, there are plenty of brilliant men out there, but the essay form, the memoir form, like it's got such a maturity to it and a kind of a beauty and understanding masculinity that I think is what's missing. It's it's filling this huge gap. That's I mean, that's such first off, I just want to accept that. I'm working on that. I'm getting better at that. I'm gonna accept that. And I really appreciate you saying that and seeing that. And and to kind of what you're saying, it's it is because, as I just mentioned, those front row seats, I had the pleasure of working with Roxanne Gay before Bad Feminist came out. I was working with Cheryl Strayed through The Rumpus, which is a small online magazine in San Francisco that I helped start before Wild came out. And Tiny Beautiful Things is actually a collection of the things that she wrote for that website. And I got to watch these incredible women writers just knocking essays out of the park left and right. And so that, again, like I said, I didn't go to academia for education. That was my education. And to hear you say that, me like it's that's because there's an influence from women writers really deeply influenced the work that you're reading in this book. I can feel that. I feel that it, that it lands, but your willingness in the way that Roxane Gay and Cheryl Strait interrogate themselves with the gloves off, that's what you do here. But I feel then, then there's a maturity and there's certain, it's like, whoa, like you really went there. We're being vague. You're being very nice. I know. I'll take this all day. (laughs) But I'm being very vague because I feel like we're just still warming up. But, you know, you've talked about in the very beginning of the book, early on, you talk about a split that happened, the before and after. And I think often 
on Lit Up, especially when I'm speaking to people who've written about their own stories, they speak of this mo- a, a moment. It's a, there's the loss of innocence. What was that for you? And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, now being this far more mature man, well, particularly than when you were a child, but where you sit with that now? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, looking back at my life, there was the first eight years of my life. And we lived in inner city Boston. We were in the South End. We were on, at first, a a small street called Tremont Street. We were on Dartmouth Street, which is where there was a soup kitchen called Haley House. And eventually we were at basically what I would consider like a Catholic worker run halfway house called John Larry House. And that was on Mass Ave. And what's very charming about that is as a child, raised deeply within the Catholic Church in New England, in Boston, in Massachusetts. I thought it meant like mass, like going to church service. But of course it was just M-A-S-S for Massachusetts, short for Massachusetts Avenue. I loved that time of my life. I loved the characters that were involved in the soup kitchen. I loved the characters that were involved in John Larry House. I was surrounded by by people of all different types of backgrounds. And it was a very charmed childhood to lead, surrounded by fascinating people with fascinating stories. But when you're a kid, you don't know that. You don't know that the life you're leading is unique. And what was unique for me was, again, my parents, married to different people, were at the time unhoused. And they got involved with the Catholic worker, which is very much a socialist Catholic organization started by Dorothy Day here in New York City, but it's moved all over. And it really gets down, it cuts to the quick, to the bone of the true teachings, in my opinion, my humble opinion, of the Catholic Church, which is help your neighbor, give the shirt off your back, support one another, kind of in a way, very much socialist ideals. And my family benefited from that. So we were very, very low income, but I was surrounded by love. So that's the first eight years of my life. Where the schism happens, and this is what's so hard, is my parents made a choice that I really do believe was based in love, which was violence in the neighborhood was climbing. I got mugged at gunpoint. There was a shooting on our steps. My mom and my father were having a difficult time And so that was absolutely part of it too. But basically at that point, they make a decision that my mother and I will move to North Central Massachusetts, closer to her family, where her parents were very hard on her and very much not in love with the decisions she'd been making. My father claims he's staying back for work. And that should have been a beautiful move. That was a caring move. It's a family trying to protect itself. But as we moved out to very much rural Massachusetts, we brought our poverty with us. And I like to say, I used to be city poor, and then all of a sudden I was country poor. There's and they looked quite different in terms of the your experience of it. Absolutely. And that's when things got incredibly, I mean, to to quote what I say in the book is that's when things went to shit, basically. (laughs) And that was the real schism in my life. And what's interesting is talking to people, most people would think, oh, when you move out to the country, that's when things get charming. But for me to leave the city meant leaving community. And all of a sudden it was very much just me and my mother in a 
desolate, drafty farmhouse. And that's when things really took a turn. In that isolation, you became her confidant. And that can happen when people are isolated and the the parent doesn't have the skills to protect the child from things the child shouldn't know, shouldn't understand yet. You know, we shouldn't be best friends. My mother was very much lacking in boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't want to kind of do the skip to the next stage, but you were, you know, in school there, obviously, you know, highly intelligent, boisterous, you know, pushing boundaries everywhere you went. And someone saw something in you. Tell us about that. I don't know if you can remember that moment, but people can see a a talent questioning some type of like, I want out of Dodge Mm -hmm. and a group of people kind of stepped in to help. Yeah. Again, I mean, community is so important to me in so many different aspects of my life. And you opened by saying some very kind things about the book world and the book community that it comes from a very specific place. There's a reason why that's so important to me now as an adult. And that's because along the way, even then in inner city Boston, and even then in this very isolated area, once you found community, that's when support started coming in. So you're absolutely right. My mother and I were there alone. It was a very difficult time. My father does eventually make his way out there, but it made things worse, not better. And again, I want to be very kind to these people because I do believe they were doing their best. And that's the difference. That's why the book at 35 is different than 25. I've learned that now. I realized they were doing the best with what they had, but things were dire. And right when they started to get their act together, so especially eight to 12 was incredibly hard. But around that time, they start to get their act together just a little bit. And that's, of course, I'm hitting 12. I'm becoming a teenager. That's when I decide to become a real dick. (laughs) And like, you know, all of a sudden, oh, the family wants to fix itself? Well, not. All of a sudden, I'm starting to realize, oh, that stuff wasn't normal. And, And I have a lot of rage around it. And so that's when I, like you said, boisterous was a beautiful way to put it. But I got I got very, very rebellious. And and what happened was community. And I can pinpoint it. I can pinpoint it to a moment. I did very well in school. That was something that my parents did give me. They gave me a love of literature and they gave me a respect for education. They themselves, educators. Always did my homework. I always showed up to class. I was not skipping any, like I knew how to get A's but I was never proud of it. In a way, I almost tried to keep it quiet because I wanted to be this more difficult person as I realized how difficult what had just happened to me was. And I really started acting out. And what's, you know, you're a kid and you think you're being very, very mysterious and this and that, but like the adults around you can start to see what's happening. And so I a friend of mine, actually, and I'm I'm going to not use his name because I know I changed it in the book, but basically a kid who I'd known for a long time, but he was giving me a rough time that morning. He called me Tubby and I hit him in the face with a math book and he swung around and he hit the lockers and his nose looked almost broken. And it was such an act of violence. But in hindsight now, we can see 2020 looking back, it was an act of desperation. It was a cry for help. And so I got an in-school suspension because at that point, the adults around me at school were starting to realize, 
this kid's maybe not being watched that well at home. And so they gave me an in-school suspension and they're like, okay, here's your work. And the idea for that was usually I'd just be bouncing off the walls or I'd be, but no, I just would finish my work and then I'd be like, how can I help? So I started helping secretaries. I started helping librarians in my public school. And very quickly, these very kind, and just to be honest, mostly women were like, how can we help? And that's that's when they started to look into, and they knew there was a program of a local boarding school. They gave full scholarships for kids in the community who could go to boarding school and they could actually live there. And they knew that my family would not be able to afford that, but they wanted to encourage me to apply for it. And through that love, that care, that ability to even write, like they worked at the school and they were just like, this school is not the place for this child. And they encouraged me and they would sit me down and I'd fill out the paperwork and I'd, you know, write the one page essays, which at the time felt tremendous to me. And we, we applied and I got a, at the age of 14, I got a full scholarship to Cushing Academy and I was able to leave my house. Talk us through that first night of arriving there and not having the right things to wear. Can you describe, because I have seen some of these New England boarding schools from the outside, you know, and they, it feels like Downton Abbey to yeah. me, you know, in my mind. So I'm just imagining this kid rocking up, you know, what didn't you have that all the other kids had? And how was that transition? Well, the first thing I didn't have was a ride. Although, again, this is oh, one of those. that's th- <laughs> right. Oh, God. Sorry to bring that up again. No, 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 no. But it's absolutely okay. Because here's the thing. This is one of those things where, like, I didn't. My friend, again, I'm sure I changed his name in the book, but I'll just say, Corey gave me a lift in his Toyota truck. It was very kind of him. He dropped me off on campus. But we both even knew, even back then, and he was, most of my friends at that point in my life were older than me. And he was like, I think I can't just like drive on, like there are other parents, I'm packing cars. He's like, I think if we just like roll in, that's going to be a problem. So he actually drops me off at the bottom of the hill. And I kind of just because I didn't have much stuff. So I just had my like a bag or two over my shoulder. I walk up. And that's one of those things though, because I do want to make room for this, which is like, was that my parents weren't around to give me a lift? Or was that like, screw you, I don't want a lift. You know, like that's one of those moments. Like I was hiding so much from my parents at that point in my life. And I really almost wasn't talking to my father because of the violence in the household. But so I do, I, I, I walk up and I'll never forget. The dorm has actually been, torn down at this point. It was an eyesore. I just want to be clear. Everything you're picturing, absolutely right. New England boarding school, up on a hill, beautiful brick buildings, gorgeous. Except for one building that was built in the 70s, which is where they stuck the freshman boys. It was called Cook Hall. But I'm walking up to the cinder block of a building. Like I said, I'm watching parents unpack cars. I'm meeting my new roommate. There's all these things. And I'm I'm just... I'm kind of trying to play it off like, oh, I'm kind of close to the to the school. It's 45 minutes. But I was like, oh, you know, I'm just from the neighborhood. And it dawns on me. I'm looking at my buddy. He's he's just, I mean, he's not my friend at the moment, but we would soon be friends. But my new roommate is putting sheets on the bed. And I didn't have sheets. I treat, I, for some, I don't know. I, like, I didn't have a grasp of it. I didn't have a concept. I just knew I was like, maybe it's like camp. It's like a, it's like a camping trip. So I brought a sleeping bag. I didn't have sheets. And he had a suit coat. And he's like, oh, we have a formal dinner tonight. And freshmen were there first, of course, and it's to get us integrated into the whole system. And he's like putting on tie and a suit coat. And I don't have any of those things. And luckily, 
this man who, who did give me his permission to use his full name in the book because he comes off as an angel, which he was. His name is John Ritzman. And he was just like, oh, you need a tie. And he threw me a tie. And there's a beautiful moment. And that could have been a charming story if I knew how to tie a tie. But I did. I just kind of tried to put it around my neck like it was a scarf. Like I knew what a tie was supposed to look like, but I didn't know how. Like for me, I'd done a little Catholic school in Boston, so I'd had clip-on ties, but I just didn't know what to do with that thing. But so he took the time to show me how to tie a tie. His mother, of course, gave him more than one pair of sheets to go to boarding school. So he took his extra sheets, he put them on the bed. And so that, again, it's that moment of finding community, finding the people who will help you along the way. And that has been something that is, I'm very lucky to say, been a constant in my life. A lot of the time, I'm a little bit out of my element. I'm a little bit of a fish out of water, but there's usually kind people who will take a moment to show me how things are done. I think you have kind of a vibrational thing going on that I think like bear energy, <laughs> like in a good way. So I, As somebody that lived in San Francisco for a long time, a lot of men bear. agree with you. <laughs> oh my God, I of course didn't quite make that connection. But I feel like, you know, people feel it and you know, we hope people would be kind anyway, but it's a good feeling to be around you. So it's like an exchange is going on. I, I mean, just to speak to that for a moment, I think that is something I was unaware that I did for many years of my life, but I'm now in therapy, as you know, reading the book. And it's something I've examined more, which is what is it about the hardship that I faced as a young child, like it's, it would have been very easy. And I did, I had my moments of violence and I had my, I, I don't want to make those seem smaller. I had moments of rage. I had moments of frustration, but in general, over the course of my life, I realized if you trusted other people and my parents at that time were not people I could trust, but I realized if I was trusting people, be they the secretaries and the librarians at my school, be they this new roommate, if I gave trust to people, I would oftentimes, not always, sometimes it did not work out, but oftentimes I would get kindness reflected back on me. And that's a lesson that I'm really glad I learned at a young age. I also feel that you become a child that grows up in an unstable home, becomes this tuning fork for the environment. And that's the resilience they need to, to make sure what's safe, what isn't. And that that skill that's developed gives you a good instinct for who you can trust. I think you just nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also you move through trying to, you know, cause as little waves as possible. Don't get attention. Definitely. Don't piss anyone off and things might be okay. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm still trying to break out of that one. Like have a voice. I mean, I know I do a podcast, but it's almost like I secretly do this. I'm like, it's time to just have an opinion and be and forget about becoming small. A hundred percent. It's you are, if you are grappling with it right now, my heart goes out to you because I am also grappling with it. That's something that I'm still working with every day. Being a little bit, I mean, it served me so well for so long but being a little bit less of a people pleaser, being a little bit, yeah, just like, you know, in improv, they say you got a yes and, right? Because you're on the stage and that's, but that's 
my whole life was a stage. I was yes anding any anything because it meant, okay, if I can keep this person calm, if these two people aren't mad, if there's no erratic behavior, then maybe there won't be violence. Then maybe there won't be noise, yelling, et cetera. And so for a very long time, I would just kind of yes and my way through life long after my home was in the rear view mirror. And to the point that you're making right now, I'm working on it. Therapy very much helps, but it's still something I struggle with all the time. So I, my heart goes out to you if you're, you're having that same thing. And I think we'll figure it out. We will, but it's hard. Isn't it crazy though to find yourself at a certain point? Like I'm in my 40s and I'm like, seriously, I'm back here again? Like I had a few good years being me, <laughs> you know, it's not. And, no, but it, and then I'm like, I think the pandemic also brought us back into ourselves, which I'd be really interested because you're about to go through, we're in the midst of a public moment. How does private Isaac like nourish his creativity, his, his yourself? And then, you know, have you prepared yourself for this kind of flip? Well, let's, I mean, let's talk, there's, I feel like you just hit on like seven of my favorite things at once. So I will try to take it piece by piece. But one, what, what you were kind of talking, talking about there at the beginning, which is, it, it is, it is very much like, you're like, I'm in my forties, you know, I'm 39, I'm approaching 40. That's a bill of goods we got sold. Growing up is a bill of, like, ooh, that's, this is, this is, a, it's not in this book. This is a other philosophy for me to talk about some way. But somebody really did tell you, like, oh, you'll have it all figured out. And you don't, you don't. And in fact, you're still grappling with things. That's what this book is at its core is here is my childhood. And then here are all the ways I've reacted to that childhood. But if you had asked me in my 20s if I was reacting to that childhood, I would have said no. And as an adult, it would be like, oh, well, surely by then. I will have things figured out. But it's no, I'm just now over three years of therapy and I'm just now starting to figure out, oh, this is why you act this way. And that's not the only way to be. And like you said, you can focus a little bit more on yourself. You can think and try to be a little bit more in touch with your own emotions and trust yourself. Because that's what a lot, I was externally trusting a lot of other people, but trust yourself to guide yourself. And that's still something that I'm wrestling with 100%. Now, during the pandemic, it was so hard for everyone for so many different reasons. I do tend to, despite everything, be an optimistic person. I tend to be a silver lining person. So while acknowledging that it was incredibly hard, the silver lining for me through the pandemic is that it slowed everything down and I did actually have to spend some time with myself. And the way that came out was through walking. Mm -hmm. So I started walking and walking and walking to the point where I was walking 20,000 steps a day, which is about 10 miles. And I loved it. I was exploring New York City. Money was tight, but I figured out ways to budget. And it allowed me to all of a sudden have time. And for the longest time, I'd been working since I was 12, money meant freedom. And I knew that coming from such a low income household, I realized that I would have to make money. And I worked, 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 worked so much to the point where not that many years ago, I had a job. It wasn't mega bucks, but it was more money than my parents had ever met. And it really felt like the highest of highs to me to see that number on a paycheck. And I was incredibly unhappy. During the pandemic, I was able to slow down, try to untether myself a little bit from this idea that money's the only way to find freedom. 
And what I found was that actually time is something that's incredibly important to me. So I became what I call a time millionaire. And it's that's as as things are opening up though now, and as to get to your last point of the question, the, the book is coming out, I'm recognizing that I still have to protect my time so hard. But to get to the book coming out, something else that I, I'm sure it sounds like maybe we have some things in common here, you might be able to relate to is attention is hard for me. And I don't mean bad attention. I mean any attention, good intention, attention, praise. And again, it's, it doesn't take a genius therapist to figure out, oh, when you're a child, at certain moments, if you acted out or acted up, you got attention and it was very physical and it was bad. But for me in general, any kind of attention can be very disorienting. And that's really hard because I chose this profession. That's on me. No, that Nobody else's fault that I decide to go out there and try to write books, to tell stories, which in general are attention-based economies, you know? And so what does it mean to actually have a book coming out where all of a sudden people are putting focus on me? For so long in the books community, I like to interview other people. I'm much more comfortable in the seat that you're sitting in now than I am in the seat that I'm sitting in now. But I'm trying to make a little bit of peace with that. And it's still hard. It's still something I work on. So real quick, the just last week, Esquire published a piece that I wrote about, about my decision not to have children and the joys of being an uncle. And it went over very well. And a lot of people liked it. That meant I got a lot of texts. I got a lot of emails. I got people saying nice things on Twitter. And I think from, I had friends who were just like, man, you just must, you must be having a good day. I spent that day in an Irish bar in Midtown, totally nondescript, just like stressed because that kind of focus is very hard for me to process. And in that bar, I realized, wait, I'm about to have a book come out in a week. This might get way worse. And so I'm talking to my therapist about not just being okay with attention, but one of the things I'm struggling with right now, and it's just me being honest, but is struggling with not just attention, but success. And will that be something I can process? Will that be something I'll be okay with? And I don't have an answer. Like this is much like the book, again, it was important to me that the book didn't feel like a wrapped up present where the, there was a very happy ending at the end. And the only answer I, like how does it feel to have the book coming out? And like, how will it feel? I'm not gonna be able to tell you until two weeks from now and we'll see. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> it was, no, it's brilliant. I'm going to go somewhere though that, so you mentioned you were in the bar in Midtown yeah, yeah. and Zeitgeist, a bar in San Francisco plays a huge role in the book. And I want to talk about that in terms of spaces that you feel comfortable in. Mm -hmm. And because I found it so interesting, I was like, Ah, oh, and I was talking to my boyfriend, Anthony, who you know, and he was reading that part and he had to talk about it. He goes, Angie, I felt this way my whole life. Bars are where I felt. When I came to New York City, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I would just sit in bars all day mm, mm -hmm. working, trying to work it out. But some, I felt good there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... I think it's so counter to, you know, oh, what we might imagine. But tell me about how you felt in that space, what called you and how almost the returning, finding that dark midtown bar 
it's not because you're a terrible alcoholic and you need to drown your sorrows. It's like something, what is it about? Like sometimes I imagine it's like a cool, there's always, if it's a dark bar like that, it's always just a few degrees cooler than outside because mm-hmm. the sun never penetrates. Mm-hmm. But I've, tell you tell me your version. No, but I, one, you nailed it, especially in New York City, especially in July. Come on, they usually have AC and that feels nice. <laughs> You're absolutely right. But one, I it just thrills me to hear that Anthony connected with it in that way, especially not to go into too much of it, but like Anthony is now somebody who starts bars. And I think in in my mind, and maybe he would say that I'm being grandiose in this, but he's making spaces that are lovely and welcoming. And I think that's so, so important. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot. So what is it about a bar? Let's start there. I think something special about the bar that you can go alone and feel great. A hundred percent. Because there are different bars where that's not the vibe, but I feel like the one like you're talking about that we're talking about is that place of your, your full as you are as yep. a person, like just come and sit down. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I it's I do not go to big packed clubs. Don't get me wrong. Every once in a while, it happens. I understand it. I enjoy it in very lim- limited moments. But for yes, for me, it is about a dark, quiet bar. And there's so many different things about it that speak to me. One is there's a routine. I know the rules. I grew up in a household where the rules were always shifting. Nothing was stable. I can walk into a bar in Midtown right now. I can walk into a bar in Utah. I can walk into a bar in San Francisco. All right, Utah, depending on where it is, you might have to pay a cover to get in because of their weird laws. But I can walk into a bar anywhere, maybe in the world. Like I'll understand the basic rules. You order a drink, you're polite, you leave a tip. I know how to operate in bars. So one, the routine just feels very stable to me. And I love it because in a world that is so unwieldy, here are these places that have a set group of rules. The other thing that I love about them, especially like Midtown is one of the busiest sections of one of the busiest cities, if not in the country, if in all the world. But especially the Irish bars are usually opening up at either 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. If you're really stressed midday, they're little escape hatches. There's the bustle. Of the, it's not just the sun, although you were talking about that. There's the heat. There's everything. But there's the bustle. There's the noise. There's the overwhelming otherness of so many different things that are happening. You know, you're hit, you're getting hit with your eyes, your ears, everything. You can walk into that space. It'll be a little quieter. It'll be a little familiar. So I think that's really important to you. And I was thinking about this. It's in the essay that I just mentioned in Esquire. I watched as my own nephew got overwhelmed at the Natural History Museum. And he was running through the place. And at first we thought it was just because he wanted to see everything. But then I realized it was because he was kind of almost speed running it because he wanted it to be over. Because there was too many people. There was too much noise. But he didn't know how to communicate that. And in that moment, I kind of realized, oh, this kid has a little bit of what I have. He needs an Irish Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'd order him a milkshake and he'd do great. So there's that aspect of it 100%. But the thing that's really true about bars and the thing that's also true about the Armory essay that's in the book and finding community there, I grew up, and it, it did, it took... I know I keep shouting her out, but I, shout out to Dr. Jenny Kaufman, my therapist. She's wonderful. It took talking 
about so many of these stories, both in the book and the ones that aren't, with her for a long time, where she stopped at one point. She said, do you realize the church, which very much a Catholic upbringing, and home were these places that most people would think of as safe, were for you very unsafe. And yet the armory, which is a palace that was run by kink.com at the time, it was a place where porn was produced, and Zeitgeist, which was this bar I worked at for a very long time, but just bars in general, just like places that people think of as maybe not the safest spaces were where you felt most yourself. And that is absolutely the truth. And, and what she said, which is, this is where she's brilliant. This is, this is where you can tell the education was that place. She was like, you were actually seeking out dangerous spaces because of your childhood, because of your home. You were looking for things that reminded you of that instability. But what you found out were that these spaces were actually quite, quite stable in a way that you appreciated. And, you know, don't get me wrong, she didn't say that all in one session. That took that took like years. I mean, like she doesn't talk that much actually. But like we got there and we figured that out. And that's why there's a whole section of this book dedicated to the armory. There's a whole section, one could argue almost two whole sections dedicated to Zeitgeist. Bars for me especially are a place where there are rules. It's a place where there's stability. I know how to act. And it's places where I feel most myself, most welcome. And like you said, I can go there with a friend. You can have a conversation, of course, but I can also go there by myself and everything else can fade away for a little bit. I can put my phone down. I don't need to do anything but be present in that moment. And that's why in a way they're like my churches. So you mentioned the armory. I'm like, just <laughs> taking that in. And I'm like... <gasps> <laughs> breathe because it, there's it's so interesting to think of course of the stability and the rules as being calming and in the essay about the armory which is so interesting and we we haven't touched upon the legacy of being a fat kid mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. me included mm -hmm. I recognize that so much but then I want to connect that to finding a real appreciation and sense of your physical body mm -hmm. through the experience of porn. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking of that like as like a container, like the, the, the rules that are very strict on a porn set that make things safe. Mm -hmm. Somehow that's all smushing around in my mind. Yeah. I just want you to speak forth on what those we we might need no Kaufman to help no what's hilarious is I love that because like I will talk for 20 minutes on this so don't worry perfect question for me you're just like go and so for me I mean there's so many different ways into this but one of the things that I come to is what you just said that it's a container and that there were rules. And I was talking about rules of a bar, but there are especially strict rules on a porn set. And I wanna be very clear here because I, I'm very careful to talk about the Armory essay because my story is in this book. And people that want to know about that aspect of my life should read that essay. And then when people ask me to talk about other sex workers' rights issues or things like that, I'm very quick to point people to 
Folks like Lorelai Lee, who's mentioned in the book, there are sex workers' rights activists who are incredible, and this is their life work, and they speak before state congresses and like and do incredible work, and that is not where I'm at. I am very much like other sections of this book. I fell into a job when I was in my 20s, and it was just, it was, that was just something I ended up doing, but I learned, just like I learned from so many other jobs, so much there, and so... A story that comes to me that's not in the book actually is a partner of mine at one point would would talk to me about it much later in life and they were basically like, do you remember the first time we like made out? And I'm like, yeah, of course. They're like, but do you really, like how clearly do you remember? And I was like, uh, I think, they're like, do you remember that I said no? And it was, you know, it was just like, we were back at an apartment, we were starting to make out and I think things were starting to regress. And they were like, and I said, no. And they're like, do you remember how you responded? I already knew, I was like, to be honest, I don't actually remember, but I know what you're about to say. And they were like, you stood up, you put your back to the wall and you put your hands on your head. And that's, and that's incredible. But I didn't get taught that in some sex ed class, seventh grade, which is actually when we should be taught about consent and taught about rules. And I'm not here to try and paint some perfect picture, but I am here to say that after I worked at the armory, those rules were instilled. If somebody said the safe word, that's what you did. Hands on the head, back to the wall. Like those are the rules. Everything stops. And that, again, it wasn't taught to me from a parent. It wasn't taught to me from some adult figure. It wasn't taught to me from a sex education class. Although, gosh, I wish sex workers ran sex education classes. It was taught to me at the armory. And so that created a structure and a place where you could actually feel more comfortable. And for somebody like myself, it's almost like I'm working backwards here. But your initial question, like, I did grow up loathing my body never felt comfortable in it. And I'm sure that's a mix of all sorts of different things, some of which me and Jenny have unpacked, some of which we haven't. But I always felt too big. And I always felt uncomfortable. And it's a it's a thing that my heart goes out a little bit to my mother, who I think instilled a lot of that in me. But luckily, again, because I'm 35, not 25 when writing this book, I can recognize that those were things that were instilled in her as well. That wasn't something she was doing out of cruelty. It was something that she was taught. And she, it's almost like she was passing it along. And I, my weight would fluctuate so, so much, but I never knew that. It's not, And it's not even like, that's the whole point is it's in the book. But at one point somebody's like, hey, way to not be so fat, Fitzgerald. And that's a line that's burned into my brain because I remember how proud I felt in that moment, which is a horrible, horrible reaction to that. It's not the way that one should be judging one's own self-worth. But I always struggled with this. And it was, and, and, and it came out in a lot of different ways, much like you'll learn in therapy. You know, it's like, oh, you think, you think you're over something, but you're not. And then it will come out in all these different ways. And it wasn't until I met this community, a very queer community, I want to say, at Kink, where I learned about uh, even sex aside, just so many different things, chosen family, how one can live one's life, how you actually can make your own rules if you believe in yourself and you find the people that will love and believe in you as well. That was all part of it too. But to get down to brass tacks, what we're talking about here, which is like also on a set where people were accepting and made me feel desired and interacted with me in a way that nobody really, like even I'd, I'd had a lot of sexual partners up until that point in my life, but it was almost always still 
really tied to shame and rushing. And as I say in the book, I'd always, anytime after sex, I just pop a t-shirt on as quickly as possible, try to cover myself up as quickly as possible. And it was kind of only a kink where people, I saw this kind of freedom that I wanted to learn. And by being around these people who had done the work themselves, I slowly began to. How was that? It's amazing. <laughs> and that I, was, you, you said go for it. I, I went no, for it. It's brilliant. That's exactly what I was wanting to ask. The experience of reading the book, I think for anyone that feels like, ooh, porn, that's like a little jarring or everyone's bringing their own background mm-hmm. to that word that mm-hmm. seems to mean so much to different people. But I can, I can say it very cleanly right now. A lot of people seem to like the book. Didn't get picked for a lot of book clubs. Huh. <laughs> like what you're saying. Like, yes, there's the societal stigma around yeah, it. Yeah, there just is. There is, And yeah. I, it was one of my favorite essays. And I felt like it was so interesting and filled with so much nuance that, yeah, I really loved that. Well, I need to be very clear that none of that was learned from me. That was Lorelai. That was Tomcat. That was Princess Donna. That was so many different people. Many other people at the Armory, both mentioned in the essay and, and, and who are not, but had an incredible impact on my life. And I want to be clear, this is my story of my experience in this industry. It's an industry with a lot of issues. It's an industry with a lot of great things. What I just said is true of so many different industries. But this industry in particular carries so much more stigma than maybe some other industries that we should be a little bit more questioning of. And I think that gets back to what Jenny was kind of saying. The church, especially Boston, especially New England, especially Catholic churches in the 90s, this place where I was raised that was very unexamined until later, whereas my situation was at at the armory to be surrounded by people who are intelligent, and filled with love and welcoming and let me grapple with these issues and really helped me and taught me a better way to live. Well, and you mentioned the church now, and it's a huge part of the book, your Catholic upbringing. And you also say that you can't really remove that lens from your worldview. It reminds me of going to that quiet bar, being alone. Church can be a space of quiet reflection. How are you finding that in present day? Mm. I mean, first things first, the church, just like like I just said, just like any industry, like there are these incredible sections. The Catholic worker, the amount of charity work that is done there is an incredible, incredible space. It's, it's not all opulence. And I think that's something that's very important when we talk about the Catholic Church. Of course, we can think about the gold and the art and the incredible, incredible accumulation of wealth. But there are really incredible Catholic and Christian organizations that are trying to do their damnedest to help. And the Catholic worker, I think, is one of those. And it's something I think my parents care about deeply. I think my parents, they are both very strong Catholics, but if you put it, yeah, I don't want to put it that way. But if you really made them answer, I think they're more of the like spiritual socialist Catholic worker Catholics than say maybe the Vatican. Who girl, we got a gold car Catholics. And and I love them for that. But for me, where I find that peace in present day, I'm going to be honest. Like that's the thing. It's not a perfect bow. I still find bars to be those safe, lovely, at time, 
of course, gregarious and piano karaoke, but at other times, introspective spaces. But as I get older, I think where I'm really finding it now, and it's quite humorous to think about how time's a flat circle in a way. My father, when he had no money, he just loved to take me. He dragged me to the woods in New Hampshire and we just go for these huge long walks in the White Mountains. Around the age of like 35, 36, I started being like, you know what I love? Walking. I'm really into it. I'm really, and almost like acted like I discovered walking instead of like was raised by a man who also loved to take me in the woods for days at a time with like nothing but our camping equipment. And so, yeah, I think for me, like don't get me wrong, bars are always gonna have this special space, but I'm finding the peace and tranquility that I'm looking for in life, I think. That, that kind of just turning the volume down just a little bit by going on long walks, making sure that my phone is down and that I'm really just experiencing, whether it's in a city or in the hills, in the forest, in the countryside, on a beach, not to be, you know, ooh, I like long walks on the beach, but like islands, like I just love it. And anywhere you can just go, you put one foot in front of the other. And that's where I've been finding a lot of peace. This might relate to my next question. What lights you up? Oh, I mean, really, truly, friends, this, like a conversation like this, like it, it means so much to me that you took the time to read the book and that you clearly connected with it and you have these thoughtful questions. I love conversations. I love spending time with other people. Like that's huge for me. And if I was to be grandiose about that, I, it would play out to something we've talked about this whole time, community. I love community. It makes me incredibly happy and community is not perfect just like like nothing has a bow on it like there are going to be times where there are fissures or misunderstandings or you know just conflict and that can happen in community but in general i just love the idea of people coming together trying to understand one another and trying to move forward as a group i really just i will not give up the faith in community i love it so so much. And with that being said, to get grander out of that, the community that means the world to me is the books community. It's something that my parents gave me. More so, the religion didn't stick. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still say a prayer every once in a while. I've got interesting views on the universe and how I connect to it. But in general, I'm not exactly an every Sunday at church Catholic anymore. But what did stick was what they taught me about loving books, the power of a good story, the power of education, it's something I still really, really believe in. But I re when I say that, I don't just mean getting a graduate degree or getting a piece of paper, just really trying to figure out how to be curious as you move throughout the world. And it's been such a joy to meet people like yourselves who take the time. None of us are in this for the money. Books are not the most prosperous <laughs> industry, you know, but what we really do care about is stories. And I'll end it. This is something I've said a lot, but it, it means so much to me. There's just this little quote from the History Boys, which is this play. And of course, I'm not going to remember the author nor the quote directly, but there's just this moment where they're talking about reading and somebody says, you can feel so alone and you can be reading a book and you'll turn the page and you'll come across an idea or a feeling or an emotion or a description that you felt like you only had. 
because you were so alone. You felt so lonely with that feeling. You thought you were the only person that ever felt that way. And then there it is on the page. It's like a hand comes out of the book, grips yours, and tells you you're less alone. And that to me is what I, that's what lights me up. Hi, Zach. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's what you do. It's what you do. Thank you for being so generous. Thank you so much for, listen, long time caller, first time, sorry, long time listener, first time caller. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Almeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.